Welcome to Oak City Church, a family of learners, lovers, and givers sent. For more information, visit us online at oakcitychurch.com. Let us know if we can help you in any way. Thank you for listening. Uh, I grew up with um, one, I have one sister. She's two years older than me. I'm going to see her this week. Um, It is, I'm going, I'm flying home to Wisconsin. It's my dad's 80th birthday on Wednesday. I have no idea how that happened um, because that is really old. And my sister is going to meet us there. And so if my dad is watching, I don't think he is. Um, That was supposed to be a surprise. So act surprised when she gets, but he's 80. So he's probably going to forget by Wednesday anyway. So so, sorry. I mean, it's just people get old, man. Age is undefeated. And, and growing up, I had a sister. We got along fine. It was okay. Uh, um, I always wished I had a brother. Um, if my sister's watching, which she's probably not, but don't take that personally. But I always wished I'd had a brother. Um, and I didn't, want, I didn't want an older brother because my observation is that younger brothers get picked on. So I wanted one of those. <laughs> I wanted a younger brother uh, that I could pick on. And, and I didn't have one of those. And so I had surrogate brothers. And my surrogate brothers were the Stemper brothers. They lived two doors down. And there were like seven or eight stempers. You can't even count them. There's so many of them. And the oldest two, I don't not, I met them like once. Was, I think they were girls. They were out of the house because I was best friends with the youngest stemper, David Stemper. And then so there were two girls, and then there was Jeff. I didn't see him much. And John, he was the mean one. And then Susan, and then Chris. And he could, depending on the day, be the mean one or the nice one. And then David um, that was my buddy. And so he was my buddy, so he was the youngest, and I slotted in with the youngest, which meant that the Stemper Brother house was the place where I went to get beat up, because that's just how it worked. And, and it was probably good for me. And he was the youngest of seven, and when you're the youngest of seven, you might as well be raised by a pack of wolves, you know, because they're like, the other six are fine. This one will be fine. We don't even, we don't even know that they're there half the time, you know, like they're just raised by that. It's not the most nurturing environment that you could be raised in. And, and so it was a little callous. And if you asked, what regularly happened is if you asked a stupid question or a question with an obvious answer, the answer you would get is, is the Pope Catholic? That's what they would ask. And they were Catholic. And so they knew the answer to that question, but I wasn't. And so I just didn't know. Like, I didn't know the Pope. I didn't know if he was Catholic or not. And so, like, I always went home because I didn't want to give the wrong answer to that question because I thought I'd get beat up more. And so I just went home confused a lot of the time and not knowing what we were talking about because it hinged on whether or not the Pope was Catholic. Like, I was confused about the whole thing. So that's a rhetorical question, right? Is the Pope Catholic? If you're wondering, he is. Um, Is the Pope Catholic? And you use a rhetorical question Um, It's like a question that you don't really need to answer because the answer is so obvious unless you're eight years old and you're you're not Catholic and you don't know the Pope at all. But it's so obvious that it's used for emphasis. That's what you do with those questions. Paul ends chapter 8 with a series of rhetorical questions. Five rhetorical questions at the end of chapter 8 emphasizing everything that he said in chapter 8. there's pastor, the pastor at the summit, uh, one of the, one of the, I looked up a handful of sermon series and really haven't listened to, one week I listened to a couple of sermons because um, I was particularly confused about the passage, but, but the rest of them I haven't, I saw how they broke them up and stuff like that. What I remembered about his sermon series in Romans is when he got to chapter 8, he had four weeks in chapter 8 and he titled his messages, the greatest chapter in the Bible part one, the greatest chapter in the Bible part two, the greatest chapter in the Bible part 
3 in the greatest chapter in the Bible, part 4. Like, that's his opinion of chapter 8 of Romans. And I tend to agree with him. Like, I, it's, it would be hard to find a better chapter than chapter 8 of Romans in the Bible. And there have been unbelievable, like, these are all verses you should memorize, you should write on a note card and have on your dashboard, you should have them on your mirror in your bathroom or on a magnet on your, um, on your refrigerator or whatever. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Unbelievable. No condemnation. No condemnation from God. No condemnation from anybody around you. No condemnation from yourself. We can be free of all of that, and we spend so much time wallowing in that. The law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. There is a freedom in the gospel uh, that he declares to us in chapter 8. If the spirit of him who raised, and that if, so many of the ifs in chapter 8 are not ifs, they're becauses or senses. Like since the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he's here right now in the room, in you, in each of us that have claimed the work of Christ on our behalf and our Christians, the spirit of God that raised him from the dead is right here in the room. He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead is going to give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. That is unbelievable. All who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. Uh, you, you didn't receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption of sons by whom we get to cry, Abba, Father, because we've been adopted into the family of God. Uh, last week, likewise, the Spirit helps in our weakness, for, when, for we don't know what to pray as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And so we get to the point where we're just kind of flat on our face, either metaphorically or physically before the Lord. We don't know what to do. The Spirit intercedes with groanings too deep for words. He prays for us. He intercedes before the Father on our behalf. Unbelievable. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. This chapter... Uh, and it ends, like last week ends, it ends this week, but last week was that God foreknew you, he predestined you um, to be conformed to the image of his son, those he predestined, he called, those he called, he justifies, and those he justified, he has glorified. Now, Paul wants us to leave this chapter with a rock-solid conviction, absolutely no doubt that God loves us, that God is in our corner, that God's got our back, that he is on our side. You know, that's what he wants to leave us with. But after all that's gone before in chapter 8, we can still be like, like, you know, I got some stuff going on in my life. I'm not really sure if God's for me. I don't, like, I don't know if he's there. I don't know if he's paying attention all the time. I don't know if he's in control. I don't know if he really loves me. And so these five questions at the end of chapter 8 are like Paul hearing those questions and saying, is the Pope Catholic? Like, that's what Paul is saying with these five questions. If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's a sense. Since God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It's God who justifies, who is to condemn, and who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Now, these are rhetorical questions. They're not rocket science, so I'm going to go through them pretty quickly. Um, if God is for us, who can be against us? Again, that's a since. Since God has shown himself to be for us, who can be against us? And, and it's not, you know, like a lot of people can be against you. you know, and actually, more people are probably against you if they 
know that you think that God is for you. Like that kind of puts a target on your back in some ways. Um, and Paul, who, who's been to prison a bunch of times, like I'm going to read a passage in a few minutes about all the stuff that Paul went through. He's not saying no one will be against you. Paul knows better than any of us how many people can be against you if God is for you. But he's saying who could ultimately succeed against you, could succeed against you if God is for you? Who's more powerful than God? And, and really getting down to what, what should we be legitimately afraid of? What's the basis for our fear? Second question, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us everything else? The logic of that question is like, that's, this, is the, this is the toughest one for me. This is the one that's an indictment on my soul. And Paul's saying, so let, let me get this straight. You believe that the Father God sent his son Jesus, who's been with him for all eternity, from heaven down to earth on a mission to live the life you're supposed to live, to die the death that you were supposed to die, uh, and then to rise from the dead. But, and so he gave that, went through all that, but you're not sure he's going to take care of the, your needs, which in comparison are minor compared to the big thing that he's obviously paid for on the cross. And so we're worried about, and they're legitimate worries, you know, our bills or our job or retirement or paying for your kid's college or the status of your family or whatever it might be. And I want to dismiss those, but Paul is, like, be clear, he is getting in our face about this stuff. Um, Jesus said similar stuff, but he was a little bit gentler about it. You know, he said, um, look at the birds in the sky, like, they don't even store up stuff for the winter but they, they never go hungry, you know, and God loves you more than birds, so he's going to take care of you. Or look at the flowers, like they're beautiful. Solomon, in, in all his glory, didn't look anywhere near as good as one of these flowers. And God cares a lot more about you than these flowers, so God's going to take care of you, so don't worry about that stuff. And Paul's like a little more brash with it. He gave you Jesus. Why wouldn't he take care of everything else? But we have, I have, I'm pretty sure most of you have like this capacity. There's a phrase that's... Um, you ever heard the phrase, don't throw bad money after good? You heard that phrase before? And so, like, I don't know if they say that in gambling and stuff like that, but just say it, it works sometimes. Like, you got a project, and you've thrown some good money at it, but then it just seems like it's not going to make it. And so you're like, stop, stop like, dumping money into that thing because it's not going to work. That's throwing bad money after good money, right? We tend to think that way, like Jesus, or that God threw Jesus, that was good money at us, but then we just can't get our act together, so God's not going to keep throwing it at us. He's not going to keep taking care of us. And Paul's like, that's not how this, that's not how this works. And so he's getting at what are we, what are we legitimately anxious about? You know, in what areas of your life do we think God is holding out on us? Where are we scared God's just not going to come through? And what he's saying is, like, whatever those areas are, there's more that going on than meets the eye. Third question, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? Um, so this is like, who can make an accusation against you? And similar to the who can be against you one, like, a lot of people can make an accusation against you, but who can make an accusation that's a legitimate accusation that has any chance at sticking? Um, now, said, if... If God is for you and you've put yourself out there with that, like lots of accusations can be made against you. The world makes an accusation that's like, you're a fool for believing that. <laughs> like, 
you spend all your time doing what? And you give your money to this and you believe that? Like, that's crazy, you know? Um, or worse now, the question, the question has changed really the last couple decades from is Christianity true to is Christianity good? So it's like if you put all your effort into that, you're not necessarily a good person for believing that because there's, like, it's immoral, you know? And so there's an accusation that people can make. The devil will make the accusation that you're not worth the effort. God doesn't really love you, and he's not going to keep throwing bad money after good. You're not worth it. The devil's going to make that accusation all the time. Um, I was just reading a book, um, really, just really interesting, this guy's honest reflections about church. I mean, at one point, he said he was doing oxy to make it through church on Sunday mornings. I thought, gosh, I hope that's not happening, you know? <laughs> but, um, but he made a comment. I hear this comment all the time about people coming to church and feel like they don't belong, you know? And I feel like we don't belong in a lot of places. And I get it, you know, I get it. But, like, man, I hope that's not what we project. You can feel accusations from the church. We can feel accusations from the people closest to us, you know, because... We can condemn each other, like especially family and the people that are closest to us because we have to live with the consequences of each other's sin and we're not as patient as God is. So God might not condemn us, but we might condemn us, you know? And so like there are people that condemn you and the person that's most likely to bring a charge against you is who? You. Yeah, it's you. I mean, you know best what charges to bring, um, but you can get wrapped up in that stuff and lie to yourself. And Paul's saying, no. No one, not out there, not in here, not right here, can make an accusation that can stick because of what Christ has done for us. It's God who justifies, who is to condemn. This goes back to the beginning of the chapter, you know, and that week I talked, the only time that I think we use the words condemn are we condemn a house because it's not worthy to live in, or we condemn a person to death because they're not worthy to live at all. Like you're worthless. Condemnation. And who can, can, who can tell you that you're not enough? And no one can. And this, again, is Paul like getting in your business and saying, if you have the affirmation of God, like that, is all, that is everything you need. Like that's the basis of it, and that's what you have. It's what you need the most. And if you have it, then no condemnation can stick because no one has the weight of God. Now, those are four. There's a fifth question. Before I get to the fifth question, let me just point something out about these four. Um, we are having, as a culture, a mental health crisis right now. And, and um, so I, I'll say all this stuff carefully because I know it's, there's, it's legitimate, you know, and, and it's just there's something about the fact that we are the wealthiest society in the history of the world, and yet we're having the biggest crisis. Like, it's just not enough. And we, we figured that out, you know. And Paul seems to be saying things that speak directly into it. If God is for us, who can be against us? And he's speaking to fear. He who didn't spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how would he not give us everything else? He's speaking into anxiety. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? He's speaking into guilt. And, and who is to condemn? And he's speaking into shame. And so he, he seems to me to be unequivocally saying that because of what Jesus did for us, we don't need to be afraid of anything. We don't need to worry about our needs being met. We don't need to carry around guilt, and we don't need to be ashamed. Uh, if, how different would we be if, like we, if we were, could, could live that out? How different would our world be if 
we could live that out. And I'm not saying that our mental health crisis is not a result of like some real biochemical stuff that's going on in medical conditions. I'm not uh, much of a conspiracy theorist, but honestly, when it comes to diet and health and the influence of money in those things, I am a pretty big conspiracy theorist. And I think, you know, 20, 30 years from now, we're gonna find out we've really screwed up our bodies and minds with the things that we eat. And it's contributed to a host of medical conditions, including mental health conditions. So take, do that with that what you want to, you know? Um, and I know plenty of friends, including some of you that have been really helped by, by the medical profession and by, um, you know, by medicine in, in these things. But that's not the total answer. Like, this is what's underneath it. One of the things that I'll remember the most is a woman at our old church, this is probably 20 years ago, and she was, I'm not, this is not medical advice, so don't take it as such, but she was diagnosed as bipolar, and um, before she was Christian. So she got a medicine, it leveled her out, and she, she met the Lord and became a Christian, and she kept going to her psychiatrist, and after a couple of times, she, and everything was great, she's like, how long am I going to take this medicine? The guy said, well, you're going to have to take this medicine for the rest of your life. So she just stopped taking the medicine, um, which I can get, and, and then she went back, and everything was fine. She went back once or twice, and she's like, yeah, I stopped taking the medicine like a year ago. He's like, oh. Uh, like, she needed the Lord, you know? And again, that's not medical advice. It's an anecdotal example of, like, there's some stuff beneath it that we need, um, and it's here in the gospel, and he's pointed out to us. I put this article out in the weekly. Uh, I saw this, this thing this week about, it was in the Atlantic, which is, which is by no means a Christian publication, but it was lamenting the fact that 40 million people have stopped going to church over the past couple decades. And it was lamenting it because it turns out, from just a statistical standpoint, going to church is really good for you. So they linked to an article from USA Today that was written by an epidemiologist from Harvard named uh, Tyler Vanderweel. Now, Harvard is no... Harvard has a divinity school, and their chaplain is an atheist, which is insane to me, you know? Like, I found that out a few years ago. If I was an atheist, this is not what I would be doing, you know? Uh, so Harvard is no friend to the church, but Harvard put out this data. And the way the guy wrote it in the article was this. He said, if one could conceive of a single elixir to improve the physical and mental health of millions of Americans at no personal cost, what value would our society place on it? He said, going a step further, if research quite conclusively showed what, that when consumed just once a week, this concoction would reduce mortality by 20 to 30% over a 15-year period, how urgently would we want to make it publicly available, right? And if we had that, like, f Big Pharma would be making billions off of that, right? Uh, he said, the good news is that this miracle drug, religion, and more specifically, regular church attendance is already in reach of most Americans. In fact, there's a good chance it's just a short drive away. Uh, and so he, this is epidemiologist at Harvard, just studies the trends. He said this is what he found out about the impact of church attendance. People are more optimistic. They have lower rates of depression. They're less likely to commit suicide. They have an increased likelihood of being in a stable marriage. It elevates one's sense of meaning, expands one's social network, leads to more charitable giving, and leads to more robust volunteering and civic engagement. Now, I am a pastor of a church. It is not a church that creates those things. It's Jesus that creates those. It's chapter 8. It's the gospel. It's this last bit and just the great news that comes out of the gospel. Faith and the finished work of Christ on our behalf is what creates these benefits. It happens to come through the church because the church is the body of Christ. And so we exist because of what Christ has done for us. 
If God is for us, who can be against us? We don't need to be afraid of anything. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us, why wouldn't he give us everything else? We don't need to worry about our needs being met. Who's going to bring a charge against you? We don't need to carry around that guilt. And who's going to condemn? We don't need to carry around that shame. And, it, and it's not as easy as just saying it. Um, and I know that, that we're at the end of chapter 8. This is the end of a, a big section in Romans. Chapters 9, 10, and 11 are like, um, it's like in the middle of Romans, Paul had a question and answer section, like a frequently asked questions section in 9, 10, and 11 about what happens to the Jewish people because he's got a lot of Jewish people and a lot of non-Jewish people in his church in Romans. And then in chapter 12, he picks it back up with this. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, based on everything that's come before in chapters 1 through 8, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And then says, don't be conformed to the pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. So let these things that we're talking about in chapter 8 today, let these things renew your mind, and that is going to be the thing that transforms you. Now, last question. And what he does in this last question, between the four, the four questions and the fifth question, he does something that I think he did in the, in the passage on adoption. So if you were here a few weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, he talked about being adopted into the family of God. So he says, Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who is indeed is interceding for us right now. And he makes this transition. I said this that week with adoption, that he goes from forensic, legal, kind of sterile language to adoption is more personal, familial, relational language. And he does the same thing again. And so in that week, it was um, like there's justification and there's adoption. And there's a, a famous pastor author named J.I. Packer that said that adoption is the greatest good of the gospel. Like justification is the thing that makes us right with God, but adoption is like the result of that. And this is the thing that we really want because, because this is kind of forensic and this one is more relational and so with justification it's like God saying all right we're cool now uh, you know I'll see you around but with adoption it's like him saying no now you're a part of the family and so come on in the house you know the first room on the left up the stairs is yours put your stuff down dinner's in 20 minutes I want to hang out with you like that's adoption and that's the gospel and that's where he moves in this last question he's defended us but he loves us and he wants to be with us and this, his question is, what, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it's written, for your sake, we're being killed all day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. And it's an interesting way to ask that question, because he, and I like it, because he doesn't duck the hard stuff. Um, he doesn't back down from it. He's not saying bad stuff won't happen if God loves you. He's saying even though bad stuff happens, it doesn't mean that God doesn't love you. And, and God went through bad stuff on your behalf when you didn't deserve him going through it or even want him to, to show you that. Um, but we tend to think when bad stuff happens, then it means that God doesn't love us. But Paul knows this better than anybody. There's another passage where he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. And he's into it with the Corinthians here. He says, I'm, this is crazy talk, but I had far greater labors, far more imprisonments, countless beatings, often near death. Five times I received at the hand of the Jews, 40 lashes less one. Man, think about what his back looked like for a second. 
Three times I was beaten with rods, once I was stoned, three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I was adrift at sea, on frequent journeys, in danger from rivers, danger from robbers, danger from my own people, danger from the Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea, danger from false brothers, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure, and apart from the other things, there's the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches." And he's saying, you know what? None of that separated me from the love of God that's in Christ Jesus. None of it separated me. Like you read that and think, when has Paul not had tribulation? Um, it sounds like he's had it for like nearly every day for the past 20 or 30 years of his life. And he's saying none of that can separate us from God's love because he loves you and He's with you. And that Old Testament quote is kind of the icing on the cake. For your sake, we're being killed all day long. But none of that can separate us from the love of God. I think that's, like, it's a little bit hard because we don't face that. We're not going to face what Paul faced, you know. But we face stuff. I mean, maybe he'd write it differently for us. Can a wayward child or an abusive boss or a cold spouse or a mound of bills or a bankruptcy filing or the slander of a friend separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus? And he'd say, nope, none of it. Christ is the one who has died. More than that, the one who was raised. He is at the right hand of God and who indeed is interceding for us at the right hand of the Father. I don't know, even know what that's like. You know, but he's like bugging God and saying, you see what's going on down there? We got to do something about that. That's what Jesus is doing. Um, I mentioned this last week. Prayer is difficult for us. It's difficult for me. And part of it is because I think God has bigger fish to fry than what I got going on in my life. Someone sent me this. It was great. Um, they, were, they were reflecting in that Monday morning. And they said this, our lives are lived out before a backdrop of complete scarcity. So for us, we only have so many minutes, dollars, synaptic connect connections to devote to any one person, situation, or endeavor. And he said, I'm pretty sure the main reason I have such a hard time praying is that I project my experience of scarcity onto God. I, I think this is totally true, and I get it. He, he said, like you said yesterday, I assume he's got bigger fish to fry, but an infinite God with infinite resources can't get impatient, bored, or distracted like we do. He hears my prayer this morning as though I were the only one on earth praying. I think that's about right. He's at the right hand of the Father, interceding on our behalf. This stuff is either, it, this is distilled, Paul has distilled down the awesomeness of the gospel at the end of this chapter. And it is either wishful thinking of the highest kind, right? The reason that people are like, oh, someone just made that up. It's too good to be true. Christianity is a crutch for people who are weak. I'm weak, right? Uh, it's either that or it is the truth that has to change everything about your life. And Paul is in your grill about it. Jesus is in heaven interceding on your behalf. We won't get better news than that. And I wouldn't believe it if a guy named Jesus hadn't lived and died 2,000 years ago, led a life so compelling that even people now 
who don't believe he was divine can't stop talking about the life that he lived. And in 2,000 years, no one's been able to dig up dirt about him. Like people have tried, you know, and they couldn't do it. And no one knows what happened to the body. There's no plausible explanation for what happened to the body. The best explanation is what the Bible says happened to the body. And part of the reason it's the best explanation is because the people that say they did know, who said they saw him after he rose from the dead and saw him ascend into heaven, started a movement called the church with no formal position or power. In a few hundred years, they turned the entire world upside down, not using the sword, but suffering at the hands of the people that had the sword by the power of the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. I wouldn't believe it except for all of that. And because of all of that, we have to answer the question, is it true? And if so, what does it mean? And like I said, as strongly as anywhere in the Bible, Paul is in our grill about it right here. And after all those rhetorical questions, he draws this emphatic conclusion. If God is for us, who can be against us? You don't need to be afraid. He didn't spare his own son, gave him up. How will he not give everything else? You don't need to be worried. Who's going to bring a charge against you? You don't need to carry around guilt. Who's going to condemn? You don't need to carry around shame. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? And his answer is no. No, none of those things. No. Um, there's a lot of gray in the world. There's a lot of gray in the Bible. People like try and make stuff out as black and white too often and I'm a big fan of nuance maybe I like it too much Paul here there's no gray it's black and white no nothing can separate you from the love of Christ in fact he says in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us like we didn't just win the Super Bowl we won it by a thousand a million points we are more than conquerors through him who loved us for I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is, when I was a teenager and came to faith in Christ, it was either Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, um, does anybody have that off the top of their head? This is so embarrassing. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him. He'll make your path straight. That's a good one. Philippians 4, be anxious for nothing. All things by prayer and petition with thanksgiving. Present your requests to God and the peace of God will, will um, guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Or this one. We're written down and in my wallet because I needed it all the time. We need it all the time. And the way this is written it lends itself to the translation, I'm sure I have become and I remain convinced that death isn't going to separate us from the love of Christ, that the messiness of life isn't going to separate us from the love of Christ. Angels or rulers, that's nothing in the spiritual realm, things present or things to come, nothing in your past and nothing in your future. Uh, height nor depth, nothing in the natural realm, nothing else in all creation, nothing at all will separate us from the love of Christ, or the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Tim Keller wrote it this way in his commentary. Paul is stating firmly that we must face life, not only troubles, but even our own sin, with a towering, infallible confidence. The Almighty God of the universe has purposed to make us perfectly holy and gloriously happy 
And literally nothing can thwart God's purpose for us. I am... I have one, one last little bit to go through. I'm going to ask the band. You guys can come up now, and we have a couple more songs. We're going to do communion. If you're new to Oak City Church, the way we do communion is a couple of us will be standing here offering communion to you, and you can come receive communion. We'll say this is the body of Christ that's broken for you, um, and you can, you can say um, thanks be to God. You can say amen. You can say nothing, but, but, and then this is the blood of Christ that's been shed for us, and similarly, but this is what he's told us to do in remembrance of him, and this is what we're going to do at the end of the service. Last week, this happens to me sometimes on Monday. I'm like, man, I should have done that differently, or I missed this. And last week, the passage ends with um, those he foreknew, he predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. Those he predestined, he called. Those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. Now, everything's in past tense, which for the first four of those, foreknew, predestined, called, justified, makes sense because that's happened in the past and we get that. Glorified, I don't feel glorified. Um, I feel like that's when I'm conformed to the image of his son, then it makes sense to be glorified. And the commentaries were even like, yeah, you know what he means. It's kind of, it's almost like it's a typo or something like that. But then I thought about it and if we have to wait to be conformed to the image of his son to be glorified, then that's a works-based glorification and it's kind of anti-gospel. And so at the end of that, I quoted this essay by C.S. Lewis called The Weight of Glory, but the the point that he made in that is that glory, our glory is usually, we get it by comparing ourselves to like uh, horizontally, like we're a little bit better than somebody around us and we get glory that way. But he said glory really comes from, it's praise from a superior to an inferior. That's where you get glory is when the superior one says to the inferior, I am pleased in you. And so like my dog, Um, thinks that I think he is the greatest dog in the entire world, you know, so he gets glory from me. Hopefully my kids get glory from the way they know that I feel about them. And so that's, and so that's glory. I started thinking about this. My greatest athletic glory came when I was a junior in high school. I was a soccer player. My junior year, we had nine senior starters and two junior starters, me and a kid named Craig Nichols, who was really good. And, uh, and so we, we, and we had a legendary coach who was retiring at the end of the year. So he didn't want to like develop a program. He wanted to go for it his last year. So he started all these seniors and then the two of us. And we were really good, fifth ranked team in the state of Wisconsin. We played in the playoffs in a regional, the second ranked team, um, Brookfield Central. We should have played him, we should have gone to states, should have gone to states. But uh, this should have been played in like a state final, but we were in the same place. So it was in a regional game. And... Um, and I, we lost. I found out later that half of my team was on drugs during the game. I found out 20 years later. I'm still mad about it, like 30-something years later, you know. And so the game goes, and they score this goal, and it was unbelievable. This kid took a shot way outside the 18, left-footed, dipping, bending, goes in. We're like, shoot, first half, though. And so we had a play on the kickoff where the ball went back to the center, halfback, and I shot up the left wing and they just sent me the ball and I was supposed to like get it back into the middle and I can see everything about this play, right? Um, so the ball bounces once, I take it off my chest. There's two guys that come at me. I don't know what happens, but I'm past them. Uh, like I do something to get past them and their all state sweeper comes out and just 
just slides me too aggressively and I kind of duck around him and then it's just me and the goalie. I'm like, yes. So the goalie seems to be coming out a little high. So I'm just going to slot the ball in under him, but I accidentally hit it over him, but it still goes in the goal and nobody has to know about that. And so we score and I run to the corner flag and my team mobs me. You know what I mean? Like it's unbelievable. And then, but then they, we score in the second half and they score and then we go to overtime. Second overtime, a minute 40 left, our goalie gets caught in no man's land. And the ball, I can still, the ball comes out. He can't get it. The goal is wide open. This kid who is, and I'm a short person, way too short to score on the header on this. A kid named Dean Maraschino or Maniscalco, curly head. I can still see him. Heads the ball. And the ball, like, just goes super. Like, the ball is like, somebody stop. The ball's going so slow. And we lose. A minute 40 left on the clock. Well, at the banquet, after the season, coach is retiring. And he, um, he says, so I was good. I wasn't legend. Nobody remembers me at Arrowhead High School. Everybody remembers this kid named Scott Steinbauer. He went on to play in college, and he scored a goal that none of us, we weren't there for against Kettle Moraine. But, so, but this was as good as I was going to get. Coach Groth says, Ramsey's goal in that game is the second best goal I've seen in my entire coaching career. Glory. <laughs> Glory, Right? the superior to the vastly inferior um, glory. Glory based on my performance, though. You did an amazing job, and I am well pleased. That passage says we have been, we are right now glorified in God's eyes. And it's not based on our performance. It's based on Jesus' performance on our behalf. And so God looks at us, and he glorifies us. I mean, the banquet is to come, but it's like the banquet is happening right now. And he says, look at them. They're perfect. They're just what I wanted. They are perfect. That's what we have in the gospel. That's where he wants us to leave this chapter. We have that glory in God's eyes. We are supposed to be transformed by the renewing of our mind in the light of that reality. And that glory doesn't result from change in us. That glory leads to change in us. When Paul said that we have a light momentary affliction that's preparing us for the eternal weight of this glory, it's, it seems too good to be true, but it's, it's true because God sent his son from heaven to earth to die on a cross for him. And all eternity was changed because he's what he's done for us. When Jesus said there's a pearl of great price or a treasure buried in a field and a guy realized how great this treasure was, so he sold everything he had to buy the field just to get the treasure, this is what he's talking about. When Paul says in the beginning of Romans, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. The Jew first and also the Greek. In it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith as it's written, the righteous shall live by faith. That's, this is what God's talking about. This is what he has for us. When Jesus says, this is my body that's been broken for you, and this is my blood that's been shed for you, this is what he's won for us and bought for us. That we have been foreknown, we have been predestined to be conformed, that's going to happen. We have been called, we have been justified, and we have been glorified because of the work of Jesus on our behalf. And we don't need to be afraid and we don't need to be worried and we don't need to carry the guilt around and we don't need to be ashamed and we don't need to wonder if we have the love of God because we do. Father, thank you for, for this 
letter for everything that's come before to get us to this point for these questions for the Apostle Paul getting in our face for 2,000 years for if we have fears and we have anxieties and we have guilt there's no shame there's no condemnation even in that Lord there's not, there, we don't have to carry any of that around but in this moment in every moment we walk in the love and the favor of the God who created the universe because of the work of Christ on our behalf. And that seems too good to be true, Lord, but it's true. And you have entered into time and space in the person of Jesus so that we can know that it's true. Lord, we love you, and we thank you, and we bless you in the name of Jesus. Amen.